You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Conceited, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Seems a little odd to, to sing what we just sang and then go right to a genealogy, but I hope that I can, can show you the connection that the genealogy has to why we can so confidently sing the things that we just sang. Start reading um, in verse 25, and then we're going to go right into chapter 5 this morning. So Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground. That the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You remember last week we were discussing the the conclusion to our account of Cain and Abel. Cain had been punished by God and had been destined to to live as a wanderer and had been banished 
uh, to move away from the family that he was currently living with. But we looked at the importance of seeing Cain's wife as a descendant of Adam and Eve, that if Adam is the father of the human race and his sin nature is passed down to all of his descendants, if we allow for Cain's wife to come from somewhere else, then she creates a whole different race of people that aren't uh, subjected to Adam's curse. And so Scripture indicates all through Scripture with the gospel that in order for someone to be saved, they first have to come through Adam, and then they have to be reborn in Christ. And so uh, while we're not sure if he married a direct sister or a cousin, that, that at some point Adam's children began to marry with each other. We talked about why that wasn't a problem from a physical standpoint, why it wasn't a problem from God's law standpoint. Um, and then we saw that Cain moved away, took his wife, took his family, began to have children, began to develop a, a city. And we talked about the characteristics of that city, that these individuals grew, they, they increased in technology, they expounded upon their wisdom, they, they created things. But ultimately, in the midst of their pursuits, they were building kingdoms here on this earth. No mention of anything spiritual, no mention of any type of worship, any type of religion, any type of acknowledgement of their creator. They, they did well. They worked well. Uh, they produced well. But ultimately, it was absent from God. And then that brings us back to where we are here in Genesis 4. Looking at the other descendants of Adam. So we wrapped up Cain's line, Cain's descendants culminating with Lamech who creates a, um, a hopeless situation in a sense that this is where we've come as mankind as he's killing people, bragging about it, taking multiple wives. We talked about it being an attack against the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of life that he has diminished the importance of life. He's diminished the covenant marriage between one man and one woman, that he has allowed that to be broken down where he's just taking women for his own satisfaction and pleasure. The question becomes then, is God going to be true to Genesis 3.15 that he's going to send a savior through Adam and Eve's line? And that's bringing us to the hope contained for us in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Some introductory notes that I want to give you based on this this lengthy passage here, which the bulk of it is simply a genealogy. It's simply an expression of of who fathered who and how long they lived and how they or not how they died, but how old they were when they died. Uh, but some important things I believe flow from this lengthy passage. Number one, Seth's genealogy reminds us that God always preserves a remnant. Seth's genealogy reminds us that God always preserves a remnant. It's a reminder here at the very beginning, and we get pictures of reminders all through Scripture that there's always two peoples on this earth. There's the descendants of Adam and Eve that are being rescued back, and there are the descendants of Adam and Eve that ultimately remain descendants of their father, Satan. Jesus calls them fathers of the devil, or their father is the devil. He calls them children of the devil. And so what we have here is a reminder, there's always two people. So we saw Cain's descendants, we saw this ungodly culture that he was creating. We see the, the ramifications of that as his children are growing up and becoming even more wretched than he himself was. But in the midst of that, God is preserving a people group, a remnant, the Bible calls them. Even to the point that, you know, you get later on in Scripture and you have individuals that are, that are sorrowful over the idea that, 
uh, that they're alone in their pursuit of God. First Kings is an example with Elijah. He feels like he's the only one that's doing the right thing. And God has to remind him of the thousands that he has preserved in the Israelite nation that are still following Christ. that are still following Yahweh. It's a reminder to us, even as as the great apostasy comes that we talked about in Second Thessalonians before Jesus returns, that there's a remnant There's a remnant here on this earth that are looking forward to the day that Christ returns in the midst of the wickedness, in the midst of of those that are perishing spiritually because they're pursuing the worldly things that are offered. There's always a remnant. There's always a people group that are remaining true to God. And that's a fulfillment of the promise in Genesis three. When when God proclaims to Adam and to Eve and to Satan, when he says there will be enmity between you and the woman, there will be her seed and your seed. And ultimately, there's one coming from her seed that will put an end to your seed, that will squash Satan, that will squash all of his descendants, that will remove them from this earth permanently. So there's renewed hope here with the birth of Seth. God has not forgotten his promise. Now, this isn't to say that Eve had only had three boys up to this point. It's not that it was Cain, Abel, and now Seth. Um, We said that she's probably had sons and daughters that Cain has taken and married, and, and the population's growing. But for her... This may have been the first child that she lost, Abel, the first one to die. And so now she sees Seth as a replacement, a replacement for Abel. Uh, Maybe her first child born since Abel's death. But there's renewed hope surrounding his birth that God has not forgotten his promise. And we talked last week that the lines of Cain and Seth uh, are are pictures of, of saved people and lost people. But it's not to say that these two lines are distinctly saved and lost. It's not that everybody that came from Cain was necessarily lost, nor is it to suggest that everyone who came from Seth was a believer. We're going to see here at the end of chapter 5 that there's only eight people on the earth that walk into the ark, which means there was a lot of descendants of Seth that did not follow after Yahweh, that did not submit themselves to their creator. But it is a picture of the two peoples that are in existence, those that submit themselves to God, those that follow after their own desires. It does tell us that we're more likely to find faith coming out of the line of Seth as we didn't see any positives in the line of Cain when we looked at his genealogy. Ultimately, Cain fathers a murderer, Lamech, who boasts about his sin, while Seth seems to father worshipers of God. The Bible highlights for us Enosh, who led the people into calling upon the name of the Lord Enoch, who was walking with God and was taken from this earth because of it. And then Noah, who ultimately leads his family into the ark as worshipers. We also see in the New Testament that the line of Jesus is traced through Enosh. So we talked last week, why does the Bible include genealogies and why should we not just skip over them? Part of the purpose of genealogies is to show that someone has a rightful claim to a position. Jesus is the Messiah and can rightfully claim to be the Messiah because he comes through from an earthly standpoint, comes through the line of Eve, comes through the line of Enosh. And so in Luke chapter 3, his genealogy is traced all the way back to here. Secondly, uh, a point to, to note here at the very beginning, while Cain's descendants are noted for their earthly accomplishments, Seth's descendants are noted for their spiritual pursuits. While Cain's descendants are noted for their earthly accomplishments, Seth's descendants are noted for their spiritual pursuits. What you see here is a picture of how the seed of the serpent and the seed of God flourish differently. So Moses is writing about the descendants of Cain, and he highlights what 
what's good about them, the fact that they accomplished things, they increased technology, they built things, they pursued things, things that in and of themselves are not bad. They developed the concept of, of animal domestication, right? They began to work with metal. So there was a lot of contribution that they made, a lot of earthly contribution that's highlighted, nothing spiritual mentioned. When we read through the, the, the line of Seth here, there's nothing earthly mentioned. We have highlights of their spiritual pursuits. And it's a reminder to us that, that as we move further and further away from our time of birth and closer and closer to our time of death, what will we ultimately be remembered for? Earthly accomplishments, earthly pursuits, things that we invested in here, or will be the, the things that are most true about us, the things that people remember most about us, will it be our spiritual pursuits? The investment that we made, not here on this earth, but in the earth to come. The seed of the serpent and the seed of God flourish differently. Cain is highlighted as the secular, the material, one who rebels against God and loves sin. His people arrogantly boast about themselves, whereas Seth is pictured as the sacred, the spiritual, one who worships God and loves righteousness. They humbly call upon God. Because at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. No mention of human accomplishment for Seth, only their resolve to worship. Then, as I mentioned already, there's only eight in the line of Seth that are following God at the time of the flood, which means all their other godly ancestors have died. That, that it may be that, because it says in this genealogy that they had other sons and daughters, it may be that these people fathered other sons and daughters that, that walked their own way. This, this genealogy, these individuals that are pointed out, it may have really been a minority remnant that was pursuing the things of God. Why, why were these individuals mentioned and not some of their other sons and daughters? Perhaps because their other sons and daughters went the way of Cain. While they weren't a descendant of Cain, they walked like Cain. Regardless, we know that these are all dead by the time the flood comes, and it's only Noah, his wife, and his children and their wives that enter into the ark. Now, it's interesting to note that um, when you begin to look at this genealogy, and I did some work yesterday, and that's the thing that I can't pull up right now. Um, but it's interesting to note everybody that's alive at the same time with each other. So you read through this genealogy, and you just, the way that you would read it is that Adam died, and then there was Seth, and then Seth died, and then his son took over. But when you, when you stretch it out and you really write it down on paper, when these people lived and when they died, the bulk of them are living at the same time. So just to give you some highlights, um, when, when Adam is, is about to die, people that are alive are Seth, Enos, or Enish, uh, Canaan, uh, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, and Lamech, all of them are alive when Adam is still alive. Remember, we talked about how quick the population grew. Before Adam dies, there are thousands upon thousands of people. So think about the tragedy of Adam who comes from the garden, experienced paradise, grows up 900 plus years. As he's getting ready to die, God allows him to see the tragedy of his choice play out. Right? Adam doesn't just get to experience paradise come out, have a few kids, and then die, and then we get all the, the aftermath. He has to grow up. He has to get old and see his kids and his grandkids and grandkids and grandkids walk away from God. This would have been a very difficult experience for Adam. God allows him graciously to live, 
But there's some tragedy in his life as he has to watch his children rebel in the same way that he did. He gets to see and experience the tragedy of his choice. In fact, the first person mentioned to be born after Adam's death is Noah. So as you read through this genealogy, all these people are alive when Adam's still alive. The first person in Scripture recorded to be born after Adam's death is Noah. So these guys are on the earth at the same time. They're walking together, talking together. So they're, they're formulating what we would call similar, similar to what, what our church gatherings are like. But it's all made up of family. They're, they're calling upon the name of the Lord. They're teaching each other the things that they've learned about God. Ultimately, we find that the line of the serpent resurfaces in the line of Seth, right? So the only people that enter the ark are supposedly people that come from, from Seth. Cain's descendants are wiped out in the flood, but we know that it's not long before mankind begins to deviate once again from God's ways. And so that, that seed of the serpent resurfaces once again in the line of Seth. Number three, worship and religion are as important to the development of mankind as technology. Worship and religion are as important to the development of mankind as technology. It's important to note here that from the very beginning, mankind was worshiping. And it's only degenerated since then, right? Romans 1 gives us a picture that we exchanged the glory of the Creator for the, for the things of this earth and began to worship the things of this earth. And so from the very beginning, mankind was worshiping. It wasn't something that was created later as evolutionists would like us to believe, it's not something that, that became a crutch later on for mankind to default to. From the very beginning, Scripture testifies that mankind was worshiping God. And Adam and Eve, their descendants, are worshiping God. It's as important as technology in the advancement and how mankind advances. Cain's descendants, they highlight the technology advance, but Moses highlights the spiritual advance here. Through the line of Seth. It's a reminder again that the best of the best lived at the beginning. These aren't Neanderthal people walking around like cavemen grunting and, and trying to figure things out. They were created. They were created. Mankind was created intelligent and creative and resourceful, healthy. We have very little knowledge about life before the flood, but think about some of the great minds that have lived today, the great thinkers, the, the wisdom that God has given to men, to men today. And think about how short their lifespan is, right? So some of the great thinkers, some of the smartest people that we know live 70, 80, 90 years. Think about the advancements that would be made if people like Einstein and others lived to be 800, 900 years old. To have that type of time frame to carry out the thoughts that are going on in their head, the inventions that they want to see happen. This was some of the best flourishing times possible this isn't what evolutionists would like to picture to us as a, as a dark age time where mankind was just bumbling around trying to figure things out. Things were happening very quickly. God's grace is seen in his provision here. Number four, God's grace is seen in the provision of life, fertility, and the prospect of future rest and comfort. God's grace is seen in the provision of life, fertility, and the prospect of future rest. What we see in this genealogy is this prospect of life and fertility. Mankind continues to reproduce. This is God's grace. He said that when you eat of the tree, you will die. God could have easily allowed that to mean that mankind will stop. And while we see each one of these individuals die, 
It's a testimony to the curse. We see God's grace in this genealogy that mankind is allowed to to be fruitful and multiply. Mankind is allowed to reproduce. And mankind is able to hold on to the hope of Genesis uh, chapter 5 here at the end where Lamech says, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work. Even in the midst of, of, of this guy looking around and seeing all the evil around him, seeing all the death around him, possibly having conversations with his great-great-great-great-granddaddy Adam who tells him about paradise, he sees how awful things have become. There's still this clinging to this hope that someone is coming to fix all of it. And that's part of God's grace that, that these individuals are able to hang on to that hope. Number five, in spite of great progress, advancement and fertility, death reigns through the curse. The genealogy here, while it's a, a list of names and a list of numbers, what it communicates to us this morning is that Satan was a liar. Satan was a liar. He came to Adam and Eve and said, do this and you won't die. Do this and you'll be like God. So it's a list of names, it's a list of numbers. It's a formula that repeats itself. So-and-so lived, so-and-so had a kid, he had some more kids, and then he died. But what it screams to us is that Satan is a liar and that sin leads to death. And no one escapes that unless God supernaturally intervenes like Enoch and like Elijah. But that everybody else has died. As a result of sin. And so while it's a list of names and numbers, it, it, it's a testimony to us today that we should take note about the lies that we believe concerning sin. There, there are things that we yield ourselves to today thinking that this sin is the exception. That I can continue to live in this and engage in this, that I don't have to confess this, I don't have to move away from this, that, that it won't kill me. That it won't destroy me. That it won't wreck my life and wreck my family's life. That I can continue to choose this. I can continue to say yes to this. And it doesn't lead to death. This genealogy is a reminder to us this morning that all sin leads to death. And every mankind that is engaged in sin has died because of it. And it's a testimony to us this morning that the sins that we're involved in are deadly. And they wreak havoc upon our life. And any, any, any lies that we're believing, we need to speak truth to ourselves about them. Because we believe lies. Satan comes to us through temptation, through our culture, and says, this is the exception. Yes, there's been a lot of death. Yeah, a lot of people experience tragedy from these sins. But not you. Not today. Not this. You can escape it. This is a reminder to us. I believe Moses writes in this way to remind us that Satan is a liar. Romans 5 test, testifies to the fact that through Adam, all men inherit that sin nature, and we all die because of it. And then the last thing I want to note here at the beginning, the detriment of mankind is attributed to man's choice rather than God's design. The detriment of mankind is attributed to man's choice rather than God's design. Here at the beginning of Genesis 5, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. See, the death that ensues, this isn't how God designed it. 
right? It says that, that God created man in, in his own image. And he blessed them, and he created paradise for them, and he put them in a place where he was their source of provision, and he was taking care of every single need that they had. And Adam and Eve deviate from that, and as they begin to reproduce, they produce their, their offspring. We're created in the image of God still, but it's a tainted image. And ultimately, he passes on a sinful image to his descendants that all of us possess today. Not something that was originally created, not something that was a part of God's original design. Mankind is in the situation that he's in because of man's choice rather than God's design. Adam reproduces a tainted image that must be redeemed according to Romans 5. And this is important to us too as we talk about sharing our faith and seeing individuals come to Christ. Because we all work in situations where we work with people who have not been born again, who have not experienced a change in their nature. And, and it can be very easy to, to become judgmental and, and develop, maybe not so far as hatred, but not to love those around us in a way that we want to see them redeemed. That we see the negative, we see the ugly, we forget that before we were saved, we were just like them. And it can be very easy to, to, to want to just push our coworkers aside, to, to want to see the negative, to want to see that, 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 that Adam image in them and say, you know what, I don't have time for this. You know, I love hanging out with my church friends. I love hanging out with those that are saved. It's so hard to hang out with lost people because of that, that image. I, I got a reminder of this yesterday. Um, we had an HOA meeting for, for our neighborhood, and um, I got to see a lot of the bad image that Adam and Eve passed down, right? So in, in Tyson and I's mind, we wanted to be a part of our HOA, and so I'm the secretary for our HOA, which means I just take notes. Um, but we wanted to be a part of it because we we're like, man, this would be a great way to meet our neighbors, and I know they're just waiting for us to fellowship with them, and, and they're great people that just want to hang out and want to want to have like small group time in our house and play games together. And we get into this meeting yesterday, and it's the biggest attendance we've ever had. And And individuals are trying to present stuff and in the midst of it you got people raising their hands saying how they they hate so-and-so's house because the grass is too long i hate so-and-so's house because they've got cars out in front that are all broken and everybody wants to highlight everybody that they don't like now nobody knows who belongs to who like whose house belongs to whose individual but they're they're talking as though they really don't care that they know that everybody knows that they hate their house and so you're you're sitting there and you're like I hope nobody mentions my house. Like, I hope nobody starts complaining about things about my house. And, and, and nobody, nobody raised their hand and said, hey, so-and-so's ha- uh, grass is really long. Is, is there maybe a way that I could come over there and cut it because maybe they've been real busy at work or maybe they've had some sickness in their family? It's just, hey, their grass is too long. It needs to be cut, right? It's, it's not, hey, they've got a lot of broken cars. Maybe they need a reliable car. It's, hey, get those cars off the lot, right? Like, everybody's concerned about their kingdom, their house, and the property value of their house. And I'm sitting there watching, just taking notes, and I'm sitting there watching everybody's facial expression as they're sharing these things, and everybody is just angry, just angry and selfish. And and I'm sitting there thinking, this is awful. This is awful. But then I was also reminded that, that if it wasn't by God's grace, I'd be sitting there right with them, clinging to my kingdom that I had built. You know, I'm looking out and I'm seeing descendants of Cain who have built something, built something here on this earth, and they love it and they cherish it. 
And they want to protect it and guard it. And anybody that would take it away from them, they want them disposed of. They want them kicked out of the neighborhood. And it's only by God's grace that, because, you know, I'm in a situation right now where I came home from work the other day and somebody stole half my firewood, like just gone. Like I come home and there's some that spilled out from my stack. I walk back there and half of it's gone. I mean, somebody's just yanked it. And my first fleshly tendency was I'm going to douse the remaining firewood in gas. So that the next time they steal this, they'll get a little surprise when they throw their match on it. And I was like, no, that's, that's, the, that's the old man. Like, like that man is being done away with. Like there's a new creation here. And so I know I'm not that far away from being like my, my, my ancestor, Adam, who chose sin and has passed that sin nature down. It's only by God's grace that any of us are being transformed and changed, right? And so as we interact with lost people, it's, it's on us to see past the sin nature and see what they can become through the power of the gospel, that they can be reborn. And so it should create a, a love in us, a stirring in us to see them become what by God's grace we're becoming through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so um, mankind has chosen sin. And Adam has reproduced a tainted image. And as Christians now, we work to, to renew that image once again, to see people born again and brought to Christ. All right, three points in your notes that, that I want us to walk away from. Hope this morning from Seth's genealogy. The first is that the remnant must faithfully worship. The remnant must faithfully worship. So we're saying that God always preserves a people. That in the midst of, of Adam and Eve producing a lot of sinful descendants, right? The, the serpent has won a battle. He's, he's moved mankind away from, from his relationship with God. And so Adam and Eve produce a lot of sinful descendants. That there's always a remnant. There's always a people group that God is saving. And, and we believe that that's the majority of us today, right? There, there's, there's possibly people in this room that are not believers that have have done the church thing their whole life and continue to do the church thing. They function much like Cain, where out of obligation they bring sacrifices, but there's no real heart connection. But the, the majority of us in here this morning are believers, and we're part of that remnant. And it's a reminder to us this morning that we're to faithfully worship together as Seth taught his children. In 26 of chapter 4, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In your notes there, underneath the remnant must faithfully worship. First, we see that calling upon the Lord carries the idea of public worship. It carries the idea of public worship. This is a transition from individual meetings like Cain and Abel were doing to where now the family is gathering together for public worship. While corporate worship is always necessary, it was crucial during this pre-flood period because there was great wickedness at that time. If you're Adam and Eve and you're seeing that a large portion of your children and grandchildren are moving the way of Cain, it would necessitate us saying, hey, let's start getting together and, and doing this thing together. We need to have a weekly reminder, a public time where we get together and we call upon the name of the Lord. So the great wickedness that was springing up necessitated the corporate worship gathering. It necessitated that, that Adam and Eve rally the troops and say, okay, we're about to go back out this week. We're about to work hard this week. We're about to subdue the earth this week. 
And let's be honest, a lot of our family is not not worshiping God in the midst of this pursuit. Let's gather together. Let's call upon the name of the Lord in anticipation of another week. Much to what we do today. Much to what we do today. We, we work with coworkers. We have family members that want nothing to do with Jesus. So we work alongside of them. We do a lot of the same things they do. But it necessitates for our own encouragement, if we're going to hold fast to Jesus coming back, it necessitates that we gather together at the beginning of the week for those purposes of encouragement so that when we go back into the workforce, when we go back to our weekly responsibilities, we're reminded of the fact that others are pursuing Jesus just like we are. So Adam and Eve and Seth and Enos, they begin to call the family together for public worship. This society they're living in, it's the one that gets the great judgment from God in the flood. It's a world with perhaps billions living on it and only eight worshiping God by the end of chapter 5. This is an evil culture. We think it's bad right now, and yet we gather with more people right here in this church, not to mention all the other churches in this area that are gathering together this morning. We gather with far more people than entered into the ark. Think about the exact same population as we know today on this earth being on the earth at the time of the flood and there only being eight of us the eight that we potentially send to uganda to plant a church there's no other church plant over there there's no church to send them over there there's just eight on the earth period imagine how important corporate worship was for them to gather together for the purposes of encouragement because everybody they know everybody they know is is is, is following after something totally different the remnant must faithfully worship. There's also some, uh, some language being used here that communicates the concept of prayer. And prayer may have become a regular act as mankind began to spread out. You'll remember there's some, there's some textual evidence that perhaps there at the very beginning, Adam and Eve and their, their siblings went back to, to, um, to worship God at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Remember where the cherubim are, are guarding the entrance? It's very similar to the Ark of the Covenant, and there's some textual evidence that perhaps they gathered there to meet God. But as he's told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to spread out, that it would necessitate moving away, that it was not feasible to, to, to continually come back to that location. And so you also have the concept of prayer springing up and becoming a part of God's people. This idea of, of, of calling upon the name of the Lord. So when you notice there, name calling carries the idea of proclaiming attributes. When it says that they began to call upon the name of the Lord, it wasn't just that they were praying to God and using his proper name. It has more to do with the idea of them proclaiming his attributes, pro, proclaiming his nature. We see this type of language in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. These are things that are true about God. These are his character traits. These are his attributes. This is what it means to proclaim the name of the Lord, to call upon the name of the Lord, not just praying to God, but recognizing who he is and allowing his attributes to even dictate how we pray to him. 
the type of things that we pass on to others. This idea of calling upon his name carries the idea of recognizing his attributes. In First Chronicles 16, verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. His attributes, the things that he's done, his character traits. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right, this is a passage prophesying about Jesus, and these are the names that are attributed to him. And yet, none of us call, call Jesus by name like this, right? We recognize these are attributes. These are, these are things that, that Christ possesses. These are things that are true about him. And yet, here, Isaiah attributes it to being his name. And so, when we call upon the name of the Lord, it's more than just calling upon God. It's calling upon who he is. Got me thinking about uh, what they already knew about God at this time. So let's just assume that, that the only scripture in our language was Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. That's all we had. What are, based on, especially those that have been here for all these times that we've taught on this, what are some things that, that would already be known about God that as they gathered as a family for public worship, things that could be highlighted by the Father? The, the, the oldest man uh, at that time, what were some things that maybe could be highlighted and passed down to his children based on what God had already revealed? Okay, he's the creator. Okay, that, that, they could spend a whole, a whole several months talking about that concept of God revealing himself as creator. Adam, who was there, the first man to see everything that God had created. What else? Merciful. Adam and Eve could certainly testify to the fact that, you know, as they're gathering together for this corporate worship, kids, we should be dead right now. Like we, we violated our creator's, our creator's command. We ate of the tree and we were told that if we ate of it, we would die. And perhaps at this point, the only individual that has died is, is our, is our son Abel. And yet it's looming over us. We know that, that we're now susceptible to death. And we, and we can highlight God's mercy that we're still here to even talk about the concept of death. Other things that, that could be known about God up to this point. That he's the provider, right? That, that he continues to provide. That he was so faithful in the beginning to provide everything that they needed. And yet even in the midst of sin, God continues to provide. You know, Adam even maybe highlighting the fact that, that kids be thankful that you're wearing these skin clothing instead of the things that we first created. Right? God provided for us. He provided something far more sufficient for our needs than what we were able to make with our own hands. The provider. What else? He's a protector. Right? God, you know, we, we highlighted it last week when God said, Cain, you're out. I'm going to protect everybody that you would seek to harm. You're communicating that I want nothing to do with being my brother's keeper. God says, if you're not interested in the family, then you're out because I'm going to protect the family. I'm going to protect Adam and his and his offspring. Um, he's the protector. And so things that I wrote down, he's the creator. He's the forgiver. He's a provider. He's a savior. He's a promise keeper. See, already we're only at the chapter five. And there's so many things that God's already revealed about himself. Right there. There are sermon upon sermons that could have been preached by Adam and Seth and Enosh. 
Mahalalel and Jared, like they're gathering together and they're just continually talking about this is who God is. This is who God is. And they're teaching their children, teaching their children about who God is. It's a reminder to us that in an affluent and self-indulgent society, the remnant must preserve a true knowledge of God and proclaim it to others. There's sin all around Adam and Eve and their descendants. And you've got a, a remnant here preserved for us in the line of Seth that keeps worshiping God, that keeps passing it down to their children so that their children can pass to their children. Lastly, here in this section, calling upon the Lord carries the idea of expressing faith. It carries the idea of expressing faith. It's how, it's how we're saved when we call upon the name of the Lord. So this idea of, and the people began to call upon the name of the Lord, we can trust that the bulk of the names that we're reading here are individuals that have confessed their sin and turned their faith to God. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, an Old Testament passage that that highlights what's so common to us in the New Testament. Joel 2.32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the same instructions that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching his, his gospel sermon and highlighting who Christ is and the tragedy of his death and yet the, the salvation that's available through that death in Acts 2.21 he highlights and it shall come to, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and he gives them further instruction to do so that if they want to repent of their sins they're to call upon Christ for salvation. Romans 10:13 that we call upon Jesus's name for salvation. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord that that he is the savior. These people in Genesis 5, Genesis 4 and 5 are doing this. You know, it's a reminder to me, too, of, of how I handle my kids. You know, as I was reading and studying this, like, there's many things that I want to pass down to my sons. You know, there's, there's many things that I want to teach them. I want to teach them how to hunt and fish and, and play sports. There's, there's earthly things that I want them to learn from me. But, but how much more do I want them to learn not just about God, not just stories about who God is, but to learn the things that, that, that I'm putting my faith and trust in. The attributes that I know about God and why they're important. You know, around our room, our God is wise, our God is faithful, our God is holy, our God is good, our God is love, our God is sovereign. Things that are so important to me, to, to my faith, and, and, and not just the stories about God, but seeing those stories connected with his character. You know, as I think back through, through my family history, um, I, I can't tell you beyond my parents how many of my ancestors are saved. Like, I'm not confident about my grandparents. I, I've, from my dad's side, I've heard that they were great people. Um, there's not a whole lot of conversation about where they went to church or, or anything about their faith. My mom's parents, same way, great people. Not a whole lot of, uh, of things to highlight about their, about their spiritual pursuits. And beyond that, I know zero about my ancestors. But I imagine Noah, as he's walking into the ark, I mean, he can count back to all these granddads that were gathering with him for worship. Now, conveniently, they lived longer, and so they could stick around, and so their ancestors knew them. But I want my kids to have kids that have kids that talk about their spiritual heritage coming from, from me. 
Not because I want the glory from it, not because I want my name to be remembered by my great, great, great grandkids. But I want there to be such an intentional passing of the faith to them that gets passed to them, that gets passed to them, that there's conversations about about granddaddy Adam and granddaddy Lauren and what they did to not granddaddy Lauren, grandmother Lauren. And what they did to spiritually invest in A.J. and Abram and however many kids we have. I don't want to just hand them all the books that my dad gave me and say, read these and figure out the faith. I have a desire to say, this is what I want you to believe about all these books that are in this library. This is what I want you to believe about this book that we call the Bible. And I want you to pass this down to your kids and pass it down to their kids. That's what was happening here in in this genealogy. They called upon the name of the Lord. They called upon his name and who he was, and they continued to pass it down to their children. Secondly, here in your notes, the remnant must take personal responsibility. So they're gathering corporately for worship. They're doing it together as a family. But it doesn't diminish the personal responsibility that we all have. The remnant must take personal responsibility. I want to draw our attention to Enoch. So while for most of these individuals, we just know that they lived and they had some kids and they died, there is a pause button that gets hit in in the account of Enoch. In verse 18, Jared had lived 162 years. He fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Jared were 962 years old and he died. And when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch did more than just live. He walked with God. All these other individuals, they lived, they died. There's there's, there's special note here given to Enoch that he just didn't live. He specifically lived in a certain way. And it's highlighted here for us that he walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? There's, there's passages that highlight it for us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Galatians chapter 5, another passage that uses this type of language of walking with God. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What does it mean for us to walk with God? That got me thinking and jotted some things down that, that I thought would be important for us to note this morning. First of all, it means to go in the same direction as God which necessitates a change in direction that we were going in before salvation, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says that when we were dead in our sins, we walked after the course of this world, that we were in darkness and we were walking in one direction. So to walk with God, it necessitates a change in direction, right? It necessitates that there's a, there's a change in the way that we're going. We know from Scripture that Jesus came to put an end to sin, and so to, to, to walk with God, it means that, that we're walking in a way where we want to see sin removed from this earth and replaced with his glory. So I walk individually with God in the sense that I fight sin in my own life, right? So I put myself in a position to succeed spiritually. I surround myself with a Bible-believing church that teaches God's words so that I can gather corporately with them for encouragement. 
I put myself into everything that they're doing, small groups, accountability groups, because I want that added protection in my own life towards my sin. But then when I'm not with my church family, I take individual responsibility to fight sin in my life. Why? Because Jesus came to put an end to the works of the devil. And if I'm going to walk with him like Enoch, if I'm going to worship him like Enosh, if I'm going to put my faith and trust in, in, in him like Noah walked into the ark, New Testament says we put our ourselves into Christ. To do that, it means that I'm walking in the direction of wanting to see sin taken out of my life. And I want to see his glory reign supreme. It also means that I want to see sin removed from this earth. And so it, it motivates me in my conversations and in my relationships with others that I want to see the people in my HOA saved. I want them to understand that the greatest thing in this world is not their house and not their yards. It's not their property, property value. I want to teach them about the city that has foundations that's built by God that the, that the book of Hebrews talks about. I want to see them change where their hope is. That's what it means to walk with God. It means that I want to see sin removed and replaced with his glory. It means that our thoughts are directed towards him and his purposes in all that we do. It means that when changes in our circumstances happen, they're considered in light of our relationship to God. That when we're, when we're tempted to worry because circumstances are fluctuating in our life, that we connect those circumstances with God's goodness. And that we realize he's walking us through those things, that he's, that he's working them for good in our life. It's, persi- it's a persistent endeavor to hold our lives open for his inspection so that we're conformed to his will in all areas of our life. For Enoch, it was a willingness to proclaim the gospel as part of the remnant. In Jude chapter 14, you'll remember when we talked about, when we went through the book of Jude, about a year ago, I guess it was, Jude 14 It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, it's highlighted because you'll remember in Cain's descendants, there was an uh, an Enoch as well. Remember that the city that he built was named after his son Enoch. And so Jude writes and he distinguishes between the two. He says, I'm talking about the one that was the seventh descendant from Adam. He prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. I mean, it was obvious at this time that the, 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 the term ungodly was a common term, right? I mean, he's just over and over saying, this is ungodly. This, this gives us a description of the type of culture that these people were living in. All of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. You know, he may have had in mind Lamech, who who killed and boasted about it, because Lamech was the seventh passed down from Cain. And so Cain or or, uh, Lamech and uh, Enoch probably living at the same time, and Enoch's working against Lamech and his boasting about his sin. Enoch walking with God so so much so in a way that he is communicating the danger of ungodliness and calling people to repentance. Enoch's outcome as well, something to, to point out, Enoch's outcome is a reminder that there is more to life than this life. That death isn't the final answer. This is the first, so for Enoch, this is the first indication of, of some solid proof that, that life goes on after death. Right. So at this point, 
We don't know how much they've experienced death. We know that Abel has died, but we don't have any indication as to how many other sons and daughters have died at this point. But Enoch gets yanked out of this earth. And at some point, it became knowledge that he didn't die and that he went somewhere to to live long term forever. And this begins to to create maybe a longing in in the heart of Adam, who was alive at the time of Enoch. Who, who, who begins to long and say, there's, there's more to this than, than what we're looking at. That, that yes, sin leads to death, but Enoch's not here anymore, which means he went somewhere. Somewhere that, that we have a hope of going as well. And Enoch is a reminder of that, that, the, that there's more to it than this life that's around us. God overruled death for Enoch, and we're unsure as to why. Um, Elijah's the other example in 2 Kings 2.11. He's taken away in a chariot. There's a lot of speculation as to, as to why these two don't die and, and what they're doing now and, and whether they have a future purpose. And we'll get into some of that discussion once we, once we leave Genesis. My plan is for us to go to the book of Revelation and teach through the book of Revelation. And there's a lot of speculation about Enoch and Elijah coming back to this earth for the purpose of prophecy, for the purpose of preaching the gospel down the road. We'll see how much tangible evidence there really is for that. Um, at this point right now, I, I can honestly tell you, I don't know why Enoch is taken. You know, I mean, if he dies, he's go, he goes to be with the Lord. So what's the significance of him not dying and yet still going to be with the Lord? I don't know. I don't know for the same for Elijah. Why, why was he spared? You know, obviously it's nice to be spared a horrific death. You know, both these guys escaped that, but... You know, why not just take them peacefully in the night where they don't experience it? If they were if they were so faithful and you wanted to honor their faithfulness by allowing them to escape a, a chopping of the head off type of death, just let them go peacefully in the night. Why does God take them physically to heaven without dying? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but but it's, signif- it's significant that it's pointed out to us here in Scripture um, that, that God overruled death for him. Um, it's also worth noting, I think, that Enoch was halfway between Adam and Abraham, and Elijah was halfway between Abraham and Christ. Both these individuals kind of stand in the middle of some of the, some of the big characters in Scripture um, as lights in the, in the time of darkness. You know, um, Enoch coming here before, uh, between Adam and Abraham, he's pointing people to the coming judgment but calling to repentance. Elijah does the same thing between Abraham and Christ, uh, pointing people back to the right way. And then lastly, here in your notes, the remnant must wait anxiously with hope. So there's, there's the responsibility for, for those of us that are part of this remnant that God is saving. We're called to faithfully worship corporately. We're to do this with other believers, but we're also to take individual responsibility, the Bible says, that Enoch walked with God individually. And then lastly, we're to wait anxiously with hope. You're moving along real quick here in, the, in this genealogy, and you come to Noah's dad. And it seems that Noah's dad has reached a breaking point because people are starting to die, right? We said that Adam lived for, for a long time, and then he dies. And, and Noah's the first one in Scripture that's highlighted as being born after Adam. And, and I think Lamech is kind of, and this is not the same Lamech from Cain, Lamech's kind of reached a breaking point here says that he lived 182 years and he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. We think it would be awesome to live 
as long as these guys live. But it may have been a curse in its own right. I mean, there's many of us that get to this point in life where we're starting to really say, all right, when's Jesus coming back? You know, finished high school, that was a big thing. Finished college, that was a big thing. Got married, that was a big thing. Had some kids, that was a big thing. You know, the next big thing is death i guess at this point you know i mean you know what we've been what we've been anticipating and looking forward to it's like okay when's jesus coming back because what it looks like now moving forward is i'm going to work my job for the next 20 30 years right hopefully live long enough to see some grandkids but we've kind of for some of us we've kind of passed some of those big milestones that when you're a kid you're, you're you're invincible you know i've got all my life in front of me and then once you start to really seize hold of a lot of that life it's like all right, well, what's, what's, what's next? What do I have to look forward to? Um, you know, these guys live 900-plus years working and toiling, and Lamech's thinking, how long, O oh Lord, do I have to continue to toil with this ground that is cursed that, that doesn't yield to me like it's supposed to? I mean, he's just broken over the curse. He's just, I, I want to see it lifted. I want to see relief from it. You know, we get to this point in our life where we're thinking, man, When's Jesus coming back? I'm, I'm tired of I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of brokenness. I'm tired of death around me. And we only live to be 70, 80, 90 years old. These guys live far longer. And so I think Lamech gets to the point where he's just like, man, when is this going to be over? When is this going to be finished? When is this going to be lifted? It's a reminder to us that our ultimate hope is tied to relief from the curse. That our ultimate hope is tied to relief from the curse. Do we wait for Jesus to come back? Because we know that when Jesus comes back, death is put to an end. Sin is put to an end. Suffering is put to an end. All of the frustration that we experience in our, in our labor, all the frustration that we experience in our relationships... All the stuff that makes life difficult, that makes it hard to get up on a Monday morning and keep going... All of that difficulty goes away when Jesus comes back. The curse gets lifted. Everything that makes life not paradise goes away when Jesus comes back. And that's what Lamech was longing for. He says, I've, I've done everything that I, that I could do. When is this going to be over? Because it, it's futile. I mean, you look, in, you look ahead into Scripture, you've got Solomon who gets everything, right? You've got Job who loses everything, and both of them come to the same conclusion, that, that, that Jesus is the only thing that matters. That, 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 that what God has revealed is the only thing that matters. You can have everything. You can have everything taken away. But the only true joy comes from what God has revealed. So our hope, our hope is not in our kingdoms. It's not in our property values. It's not in the in, in anticipation of being married one day, having kids one day. Our hope is in the curse being lifted. This is so important because we're talking about taking this overseas, right? We're talking about taking this message overseas. And, and those that go will interact with individuals that need to know that their hope is the curse being lifted, just like it was for Lamech, just like it was for Noah, just like it is for us today. Our hope, our anticipation, what we're waiting for is for this curse to be lifted. Those who enjoy the blessing of being called by God can anticipate victory over the curse. As they walk with the Lord today. So we, we leave today knowing that we're still living under the curse. We leave today knowing that this is going to be a hard week. Not nearly as hard as some of our brothers and sisters around the world. But nonetheless hard in our context for what we know. But we leave hopefully 
excited over the idea that the curse is going to be ended one day. That everything that we experience this week that's, that's difficult one day will go away. That we have an eternity coming to us, much like paradise that Adam and Eve were experiencing. Backing up just a little bit as we wrap up, Methuselah was born. Um, he's, the, he's the father of Lamech. Um, Enoch was his dad, so Enoch has Methuselah, and then Enoch is, is uh, taken. Um, there's some significance to Methuselah, though. Methuselah's name uh, is probably best translated, when he dies, it will be sent. When he dies, it will be sent. Now, part of what I did yesterday studying is I took all these guys' names and all their years and, and wrote them down on Scripture. I knew I could just Google it and find a timeline, but I wanted to kind of do the work on my own and see if it matched up. I didn't want to just be told that this was how it was. So so I kind of wrote it all down to see who was alive um, at what times and, and whatnot. And if, if there's no gaps in this, now we've talked before, in some genealogies there are people that get left out, but the odds are that nobody's left out since there's such significant numbers given here, right? So in Cain's genealogy, there's not, they lived so many years and then died. It's just so-and-so begot so-and-so. Here we've got exact years, and so the odds are that this is, a, this is a true exact genealogy with no gaps. But if you lay this out on paper, you'll see that the way it flows, and what we find out in Genesis chapter 6, is that Methuselah dies the year the floods start coming. That it starts raining when Methuselah dies. Now, I didn't see the movie Noah, um, so I don't, I don't have any opinion about it, but I was just thinking yesterday studying, like, I just picture, like, if I was making that movie, I'd have my family members surrounding Methuselah, you know, and he's on his deathbed, and, and as he's dying, I mean, it starts, it starts thundering. I mean, the, the clouds start rolling in, and, and Noah says, it's time. It's time, boys. It's time, girls. Let's go. Because when he dies, it's going to be sent. There, there's probably some correlation here to what goes on in, in the wordage here with Enoch. It says, um, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. There, there's, there's many that believe that his actually walking with God started when Methuselah was born, that he was given some special insight that this boy is special. And we see the message that Enoch preaches in Jude, that he got real ramped up about this, that something's coming, the ungodly need to know about it. Right? And so Methuselah was a special individual because he lives all the way up to the flood. And we have no reason to think that he's not righteous, that he's not following. It's just that in his old age, we're going to let him die and then we're going to do the flood thing rather than having him live through it and then die after the flood. So, so God lets him live all the way up to the flood and then he sends his judgment. I think it's also important to note that he's the longest individual to ever live that we have record of. He lives longer than anyone. Why is that significant? Because if you connect that with God sending the flood after his death, it communicates God's grace. He says, I'm going to send the flood. I'm going to send judgment after this guy dies. And to show you how gracious and how much I desire repentance, he's going to live longer than any other man. I'm going to extend my grace to the far reaches to give you guys individuals, you individuals, the chance to repent. Right? It's a testimony to what, what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter 3 9. Second Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
This is in context of people saying that Jesus isn't coming back. You know, the church believes that judgment's coming. Peter paints it in the picture of fire. And he says there was a time when God judged the world through water. He's, he's, he's put a bow in the air. That's not going to happen again. He's going to do it through fire the next time. Peter says there'll be many scoffers in the last days that say not happening, not happening, not happening. And Peter says it's not because God's forgotten. It's not because God is, is slow. It's because God is very patient and God is very merciful and God is very gracious. And so every day that we wake up and see that the, the amount of years since Jesus left this earth continues to grow, it's a reminder to us of God's patience and his long suffering and his grace and his mercy. Now, I'm not aware of anybody that's going to die and then Jesus comes back. But the, 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 the truth reigns true here in the New Testament, that the longer Jesus waits, the more grace and mercy he demonstrates. And I really believe that there's coming a day when the last person that's supposed to be saved, when they get saved, when they turn and repent and put their faith and trust in Christ, that it'll signify the end. That God's grace will, will be extended as far as it will extend. And then he'll bring judgment much like he did during this flood period. The application for us this morning. Much like Enoch was awakened to coming judgment, we too must live in light of coming judgment. Much like Enoch was awakened to coming judgment, we too must live in light of coming judgment. It may be that Enoch wasn't too serious about things before Methuselah was born, but when he catches this vision, he becomes awakened to coming judgment. He begins to live differently. Second Peter 3.11 says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Peter reminds us, he says, if you believe this, you believe Jesus is really coming back, it ought to alter the way that you live, obviously. It ought to alter the way that you live in anticipation of that coming judgment, much like it did for Enoch. Which leaves me with three questions. Will we gather faithfully to worship and proclaim his name? If we're going to be like the remnant before the flood, then we're to gather faithfully to worship and proclaim his name. And I hope you know that I mean more than just coming here on a Sunday, right? That we need an army that gathers here on Sunday mornings that are given everything they have to expand the kingdom of God. That are here to give their resources, to give their time, their energy, to give their lives when called upon to see Christ's kingdom expand. Will we walk responsibly as individuals by fighting sin? Will we walk responsibly as individuals by fighting sin? It's great that we gather on Sunday mornings. It's great that we could that we can we can look out and see people that are supposed to be following Jesus. But individually, are we doing that when we leave here? Individually, are we fighting sin? Are we taking responsibility? Are we walking with God as Enoch did? And then lastly, will we fixate our minds and dreams on the hope of sin's curse being broken? Will we fixate our minds and dreams on the hope of sin's curse? Being broken. Second Corinthians 5 talks about the hope that we have that when Jesus returns, new bodies are given to us. The sin, the sin curse is lifted upon God's creation. My hope is that, especially for our dads in this room, that this becomes your, your motivation and your endeavor with your family. That your wife, that your kids... That they're, they're, they're embracing this hope of the curse being lifted because you're teaching it to them, because you're communicating it to them. 
that you're fixating your family on the hope of Jesus coming back and the curse being broken. That you're passing down your faith in such a way that your kids will pass it down to their kids. That we, that we model what we see in this genealogy. People that gathered faithfully for worship, took personal responsibility in their own life to follow Christ, and that their anxious hope for the future was passed down as we see Lamech longing for the curse to be lifted. Noah identifying himself as being an instrument that God was going to use for the preservation of the race. And while, while, while Lamech longed for the eternal lifting of the curse, what we do see in the flood and what we're going to see in Genesis 6 is that God extinguished, God extinguished a lot of sin from the earth when that came. But there was temporary relief given. There was a reset button hit where, where Noah started over with his family. But what we're, what we're reminded of in that story, and we'll see, is that even if we took every, if we took the best Christian family we could on the earth right now and got rid of everybody else and said, let's just start over, that it wouldn't take long. It wouldn't take long for, for children to deviate from their parents' instruction and for sin to reign once again. That what we need is not the best human beings to fix everything. We need Christ, who is the ultimate God-man, who has already come to initiate the fixing of things. And when he returns again, it'll culminate with sin and death being done away with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for much truth that's contained, that can be gleaned from this genealogy. Father, I pray that as we leave today that we're reminded that, that Satan is a liar. That as we're faced with temptation today, as we're faced with temptation this week, God, help us to be reminded of this list of men who lived and lived long but died. God, help us to be reminded that any, any uh, decoration that can be added to sin, any deception that can be added to sin to make us think that this time is the exception, that this sin doesn't lead to death, that this sin doesn't wreak havoc. God, help us to, to take the blinders off. Help us to see past the way the world likes to adorn sin. God, help us to see the truth of the hook, the death that's contained in sin. God, I pray that we would fight responsibly as individuals. God, help us to fight corporately together as a church family. God, my hope is that people can come to this body of believers and know that they can be held, they can be held accountable and protected and encouraged as they try to do it individually. And God, I pray that all of us would fixate our focus and attention on the curse being lifted in the future. Help us not to be uh, guilty of going the way of Cain where we build our kingdoms here, where we invest everything in our possessions here. God, help us to be willing to die to ourselves and die to the, the things that this world has to offer. Instead, God, I pray that we would fixate our hearts and attention on the future hope of Jesus returning and the curse being broken. And God, in the meantime, we pray that much like Enoch, who, who had a wake-up call and, and it stirred him to become vocal to those around him, that, that, that something was coming in the future. God, help us to be reminded, too, that, that we're called to be vocal to those around us. That while we wait for Jesus to return, we're called to warn others that Jesus is coming. And Father, I pray that you'd protect us from from forgetting ourselves. God, we know that in the, in the last days that there will be people that say Jesus has forgotten to come back. Help us not to be guilty of forgetting that he is coming back. 
Instead, God, help us to see that every day that you give us is an extension of your grace. That it's another opportunity for our family, for our friends, for our co-workers to repent and turn to Jesus. God, help lead us. Call them vocally. Take advantage of your patience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.